Well, good evening. How is it Saturday night already? Time has flown and I'm not ready to go home yet. I don't know about you. I think maybe we should do a week-long cause next time. <laughs> There's some enthusiasm for that. Um, but, oh gosh, we are so grateful for all that God has done among us already. And I, I wait in wonder to see what he's going to do among us this evening. So for those of you that don't know me, I'm Steph and I am married to Paul. There's lots of Pauls in the room, but this Paul. Very good man. And uh, we lead Manchester Vineyard together and um, don't know who they are, where they're from. Um, and I have to say, that I just love Manchester Vineyard. It is such a brilliant church because God is building something so beautiful there and it feels like such a privilege to be part of what he's doing. We have two, um, I might be a bit biased, two very gorgeous daughters, uh, nine-year-old Sophie and nearly five-year-old Olivia. I'm just going to tell you a little bit about them. Sophie, um, she loves people. She loves a party. She is always singing and dancing and she is thoughtful and so very kind. Livy is creative. She has the most brilliant imagination, a deep love of koalas. Um, she um, is very loving and um, she's my little home bird. They also have, both of them, I believe, a healthy amount of cheekiness and a fire in their belly, which they got from their mum. And uh, I, yeah, I just love being their mum and can't wait to see them later. <laughs> They'll be asleep, but I'll give them a kiss on the head. Um, Paul and I have just celebrated our 16th wedding anniversary and I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. I do not look old enough. I can, cannot have been married for 16 years. And I say thank you for that. <laughs> um, right, now we know each other really well. I'm just going to jump straight in because anyone that knows me will be able to tell you that I am not afraid of a deep and meaningful. I'm also a massive believer in being open and honest with our stuff, not in an oversharing, overbearing, indulgent, self-indulgent way, but because I think we often find ourselves in other people's stories. And it can be hugely reassuring and really helpful as we navigate life's ups and downs. But before we go any further, let's just pray. Our oh, Father, may we make much of you, much of Jesus this evening. And may our hearts be postured towards just being receptive to what you want to do, how you want to stir us, how you want to speak to us. Jesus, we love you. Amen. Always good to steady yourself in prayer to start. <laughs> right. In September 2018, I sent a message to a friend, and I'm just going to read it to you now. I feel sick most of the time. I feel low and on edge throughout the day and I could cry at the drop of a hat. I'm fearful and frightened and I actually feel scared of going out or facing the world. My mind is in overdrive, massively overthinking things and catastrophizing everything. I feel like I'm constantly in fight or flight mode and as though my body is fighting against me. I know life ebbs and flows. And there are always ups and downs, but I'm finding things really hard at the moment. I feel intensely lonely, even though I'm surrounded by loved ones, and such deep sadness. 
I feel like I've been fundamentally weakened somehow. And I genuinely don't know how I'm going to come back from this. Sometimes life throws up such difficult and frightening challenges, doesn't it? Ones that can completely throw us off course and make us feel totally out of sorts. At this point in my life, I was two years into leading Manchester Vineyard with a five and one-year-old in tow, and life was good. I had a lovely marriage, lovely children, brilliant growing church family, wonderful friends, and so much more besides. So what was happening to me? I felt like I was unravelling. It was like I was in free fall and there was absolutely no stopping it. I felt wretched. As someone who is naturally pretty springy, usually quite quick to bounce back from things, uh, quite a resilient character, and one wired towards positivity and overcoming, this was, well, this was new territory. I continued to pray and stay close to Jesus. I taught and I processed with friends and I heeded their wisdom. But this heaviness just clung on. It would not shift. What I can only describe as hopelessness was marching towards me at a frightening rate. After a number of months of symptoms gradually worsening, feeling sick all of the time, trembling, being emotionally spent, unable to find joy in so many of the things that ordinarily would have made my heart sing for joy, I made an appointment with my GP. And she was wonderful. I talked, she listened, and she didn't rush me. She concluded that I probably had too much adrenaline in my system, most likely from facing a number of kind of major life events and varying degrees of trauma over a sustained period of time. For example, having chronic migraine and consequently ME, meaning I was housebound and unable to work for about two and a half years when Paul and I were newly married. Watching Paul's dad die when he was only 52 from a cancer that literally ate him away moving cities away from family and moving cities again, even further away from family, each time to pursue calling, but nevertheless deeply costly. Whilst at the same time, facing the sorrow and emptiness of losing a longed-for and long-awaited baby. It all collided. There were episodes of undetected postnatal depression after both our daughters were born. There were times of significant financial strain, and there were relational tensions that made our peacemaking hearts ache. And so it goes on, layer upon layer. The doctor prescribed some medication at my request that she hoped would restore the chemical imbalance that had most likely built up over a number of years. Although I had sought help and support and healing and had absolutely been healed of so many of the things that had gone before, it was as though my body just couldn't write itself anymore. No amount of talking or processing or shifting things, and my natural inclination to choose perspective and gratefulness just was not leading to any meaningful change. Essentially, the natural balance was off, and I needed a helping hand. I was told to expect that my symptoms would likely get worse for roughly four to six weeks uh, before seeing if there would be any therapeutic benefit high risk. And that's exactly what happened. If I thought I was bad before, this was another level. Any shred of optimism, confidence or joy just drained from me. 
the assault on my sense of calling to Manchester, my purpose in life, my sense of worth that had begun to taunt me got exponentially worse. I actually felt like I was losing my mind. Even though I'd been primed to expect it, it hit me hard. Bleakness and desperation surrounded me. I was encouraged to take one day at a time, really good advice, to keep clinging to Jesus, also excellent advice, and stand firm. It really wasn't easy, but I tried to do just that, whilst also continuing to look after my girls and lead a church. Life doesn't stop, does it, even when our internal world feels like it's grinding to a halt. After about five weeks, though, something changed. What had felt like a storm raging inside me blew over. It was like I could breathe again, having been restricted for so long. I felt myself again, perhaps more myself than I had done for years. I realised I'd become quite accustomed to a life of daily struggle, just to hold it all together, pedalling really hard under the surface. I was so grateful, and I still am, to not be living in and battling through that storm. It was such a relief that the hope of brighter days was emerging. The reality, though, was the hope that had always been there. Hope wasn't just emerging because I was feeling more hopeful. How we feel is not a reliable measure of God's goodness and sovereignty, is it? Hope enabled me to walk through to stand firm and to emerge from the storm. Whatever the outcome had been, hope remains the same. And it says in Hebrews that the hope we find in Jesus is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. We don't have time this evening to explore in any great detail mental or emotional well-being. Um, that's a whole other talk. And I'm not trying to say that medication is always needed. Sometimes we need the meds, sometimes we need to talk, sometimes we need therapy, sometimes we need to press in for healing and freedom. Sometimes there's a spiritual dynamic that we need to acknowledge and we need to deal with. Sometimes it's all of those things. But I share my experience, one of a whole world of different people's experiences, because I can testify to the fact that in Jesus, we can find an unshakable hope that truly is an anchor for our souls. A hope that is more than capable of holding our hearts in perfect peace, whatever life throws at us. In the moments where life feels like it's crushing us, we need to choose to have hope and faith. Some of you will be in the storm at the moment. You feel like your hearts and your minds are under fire. But even when we can't see beyond our pain to his plan, we can have hope that our story isn't over. In the depths of our distress and discomfort, Jesus is there. He has made countless promises to us that he cannot and he will not break. We're not left at the all is lost point in our, in our lives and he reminds us that joy waits on the other side of pain. It always does. God is always working and he doesn't waste any opportunity. This is certainly my experience. He doesn't waste any opportunity if we let him to use it to, to shape and transform us. The enemy's best attempts to discourage us and harm us will always fall victim to God's resolve 
to shape and bless us. So with that in mind, I'm going to reflect this evening on three aspects of the hope we find in Jesus. He is our personal hope, he is our certain hope, and he is our future hope. And we need to talk about hope because the world is experiencing a growing crisis of hope. Research shows that Western cultures have long carried a prevailing expectation that history was progressive, in that the human race was moving towards creating a world of greater safety, lengthening lifespans, improving healthcare, technological advances, prosperity, freedom, and so on. It was widely believed that overall every generation would experience a better world than the previous generation. But by the beginning of the 21st century, the numbers of people believing in a better life for their children was beginning to decline. Pessimism over the future has only deepened as the years have gone by, and there are so many reasons for this. Polarisation and fragmentation in society. There's also the threat of climate change and the never-ending possibility of international terrorism. Another huge threat to our future comes not from the lack of scientific and technological progress, but ironically as a result of it. The very things that were, were supposed to keep us safe have, in fact, created new problems. And the list goes on. Consciously and subconsciously, we are a generation in which this has very much been the backdrop to our lives and the lens through which we view so much, not to mention the fact that we have lived through and are continuing to live through a global pandemic. There is a sense of angst and hopelessness char characterising our age. There is so much profound discontent, despair, addiction and loneliness in the most advanced of societies. And suicide rates are on the rise. We've never been more educated. We've never had um, more tools of technology. I mean, tools of technology that, have, that previous generations would have, couldn't have even imagined. We are saturated with entertainment and instant gratification. Yet more than ever, people are taking their own lives. People are literally dying of a lack of hope. In a journal entitled, The World is Better Than Ever, So Why Are We So Miserable? It so aptly says this. As we have slowly and surely attained more progress, we have lost something that undergirds all of it. Meaning, cohesion, and a different, deeper kind of happiness than the fulfillment of all our earthly needs. Guys, it's time for us to realign our perspective and to simplify our focus. We have got to stop looking to the idols and the offerings of this world to palliate or satisfy or fulfill our needs or our deep desire for hope. It's misguided, it's misplaced, and it's misunderstood hope. True, unshakable, wholly satisfying, living hope can only be found and will only ever be found in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Worries, troubles, pain, suffering will always be part of our lives. But as, as followers of Jesus, we can be reassured. Our hearts and minds can be reassured by Jesus' steadying words when he says, here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. There is no greater triumph 
No greater comfort, no greater hope. The night before Jesus was crucified, he said to his disciples in John 14, I am the way, the truth and the life. Jesus' encouraging words came just before the cross and there we find further comfort, not only in its saving power, but in its demonstration of divine love. He is our personal saviour, our personal hope. That night, Jesus also said to the disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. Jesus is fully trustworthy. And he passes on to us an amazing inheritance, one to live and die by. He is the way, the truth and the life. What an invitation, a revelation and promise all rolled into one. When Jesus says he's the only way to God, the Father, some people might think that's a bit narrow, exclusive or boastful even. People are often satisfied on their own or perhaps they refuse on principle to examine Jesus' claims or perhaps they might deny their lostness or convince themselves that there, there must be several valid reasons to, um, to Jesus besides God. No, besides God. No, hang on, what? <laughs> I've lost myself there. Or convince themselves that there must be several valid ways besides Jesus to God. There we go, back on track. Okay, don't want to get anything like, you know, theologically wrong there. Um, <laughs> but we didn't invent the claim. He invented the claim. He himself made the claim. In reality, it's wide enough for the whole world if the world chooses to accept it and what Jesus said. Instead of tripping over how limited or restrictive it sounds, we should be thanking God for providing a clear way to get to him. So much of our culture, our political landscape, our social context, our economic climate is in turmoil. And I don't want to overstate that because we only need to look at the Bible, don't we, to realise that we are not the first generation of people to be living in troubled times. But our present day struggles and giants are real. And they have the potential to pull and push us, to shape and mould us, and ultimately completely derail us. We can be rocked in so many ways. So when Jesus says he's the way, surely... This is excellent news. He's the one we look to for all that's ahead and all that's unknown. We know exactly where to go to find everything we need and our entire life purpose. He is our guide with dependable directions and powerful protection. In addition to providing the way to God, he also teaches us and reveals to us the way to live. He is the way in every sense of the word. When Jesus called his first followers among the fishermen, tax collectors and fanatics of Galilee, what did he teach them? He didn't teach them a traditional belief system. Instead, he led them to a committed and radical life of faith and servanthood. He didn't just tell them that he would die for their sins so they would gain eternal life with him. No. He called them to follow him in a more authentic and fulfilling life that would eventually establish love and peace and justice and compassion. He didn't promise them a glorious or easygoing future or a kingdom of comfort. He taught them to seek and expect the inbreaking of the kingdom of God here on earth among the poor and outcast of society. Jesus called people to give up everything and follow him in a way of living. 
Following Jesus calls us to become revolutionaries, pioneers and seekers of change and transformation. This may well be costly. In fact, it most certainly will be costly. But in this life, we are tasked with simply knowing and trusting in Jesus and walking in faith that he is the way. When Jesus called the disciples, he said, follow me. And he says the same to us. To follow is to track, to walk with, to shadow. And whether we want to face up to this or not, the reality is is that we're either following or we're not. And if we're not following Jesus, we'll be following something else. When so much is uncertain and confusing, and when so many of the things in the world might bring us temporary comfort or satisfaction, we are presented with an opportunity to review our lives, to review the state of our minds, and to review the posture of our hearts. He asks us to follow him and his ways, and we can do that whoever we are, wherever we are, and whatever our circumstances. What does that look like for you? I want to call you tonight into the fullness of following Jesus. No one can do this for us. This is a personal choice and conviction for each of us. But it is our time to rise up and to make a difference, to put the hope we find in Jesus on display. We need it and the world needs it. Following Jesus changes everything. God became man and came into the world to live as we do, to know tears and laughter, pain and joy, injustice and compassion. He came because of his love for us. And he not only came, but he stayed. He lived and he cared. His story is a collection of moments that remind us that he cared enough to experience life with us, to step into the mess and the brokenness, the darkness and the oppression. Some moments show us that he loved us enough to change the course of hopeless situations. A simple lunch of fish and bread that fed thousands. A leper's skin made new. And a woman's years of suffering ending in a faith-filled moment. Other moments show us he understands our questions and our crying out. The death of a friend. The grief of a parent. And the garden of agony. He lived and he breathed it all. Jesus, both God and man, knows intimately our experience and our needs. He knows everything about our lives, all our joys, all our struggles, all our wins, all our losses. I want to encourage you to surrender your ways and follow his guidance, trusting his ability to lead you and do for you what we cannot do for ourselves. He made it personal, when he came to live among us, and we need to make it personal too. He is our personal saviour and he is our personal hope. He is the only sure hope in this world, the only sure hope that can't be taken from us. He is, and this leads me on to my second point, our certain hope. We can fully trust in Jesus. He is our immovable, ever-constant, never-failing, never-wavering source of hope. He is completely trustworthy. In him there is nothing false, nothing misleading, nothing fake or uncertain. We're capable of knowing truth, 
But no, none of us can claim to actually be truth. There are too many things we don't know and too many things that we get wrong through the course of our lives. Jesus, however, can testify to, to the truth and teach the truth because he himself is the truth. Jesus is the source of intimate knowledge of the Father. His answers, teaching and commands were right. There was no shadow of dishonesty, falsehood or lying in his life. He is the reality of all God promised. He is the truth. And in an age where truth is questioned, where news is conflicting, where global political leaders often seem to impose extreme views, when we ourselves might have doubts, wrestles, fears over the challenges we face, it's in the face of Jesus that we find truth. Truth that sets us free from the strangleholds and the lies that can occupy our minds and our hearts. Jesus knows. He understands. And he speaks truth that pierces right to our hearts. In January 2020, Paul became really unwell. What we thought to be a nasty case of pneumonia, which we now know to be COVID, rapidly escalated. He deteriorated fast, struggling to breathe, heart racing and severely dehydrated. He was blue-lighted to hospital. I followed, trying not to keep up with the ambulance, and uh, joined him in recess, where they worked for hours to stabilise him. Eight hours, I think it was, to stabilise him. It was horrible, it was frightening, and I mean, we all know how COVID can end. After the initial shock, there were waves of relief, deep gratitude that Paul was out of immediate danger. But that was by no means the end of it. It took months for Paul to begin to recover. For the first few weeks, he was bedbound, sleeping most of the time, exhausted by even the shortest of movements or interactions. I would help him sit up in bed and it would take him about three hours of sleep to recover from just that. In the days and weeks after bringing him home, I experienced something that I couldn't have predicted. I think I could have predicted shock, um, reeling from the trauma of it all, exhaustion, relief. And I did feel all those things, but the overriding feeling was of disappointment. Disappointment and sadness, of course, that Paul had had to go through a physically and emotionally punishing ordeal with no real guarantee of when or if he would get better. Disappointment over all the things that we'd had to miss as a family. And disappointment that the girls had to witness their dad so debilitated for such a long time. But that wasn't it. There was this deep and weighty yet indefinable disappointment. I prayed and I talked with Jesus. But what also surprised me during this time was that I felt like for perhaps one of the first times in my life in a point of crisis, I couldn't seem to find, hear, or sense God. The peace of God that I had become so familiar with, so at ease with, that guided and steadied me, seemed to have temporarily left me. No matter how much I tried to reach for him, he seemed so far away. I wasn't having a crisis of faith, and I didn't doubt his goodness. He poured out his kindness over us as a family during that time. I just felt like I was in a fog, and I couldn't find my way through. It felt uncomfortable and disorientating. So I decided I just had to wait. 
I was just going to sit in it and wait, trusting that there would be an end to it and there would be a purpose in it. I stopped wrestling and questioning. I stopped asking God to speak, not in a resigned or stubborn way, but by choosing to lean on what I knew to be true of God before. The weeks passed and the waiting continued. Paul slowly recovered and we began to emerge out of the other side and I gradually emerged from the fog. As I look back, and I think even at the time, I could sense that God was teaching me to hold firm in the tension, to cling to the hope of Jesus and to learn to embrace the bittersweetness of life. In the silence and in the space, he was teaching me to be content, to trust him with the pain and the unknowns and rejoice in the joys and mercies, choosing perspective and gratitude, standing on truth and putting hope into practice. The struggles of life can be incredibly painful, exponentially more so when we fight it. But they also have the potential to open us up and deliver us right into the palm of God's hand. What's worse than pain? I would say it's wasted pain. Pain that doesn't make us wiser or stronger or more sensitive to other people's pain. Pain that doesn't result in any good. We always have a choice. In the waiting, in the tension, and in the midst of struggles, we have opportunities to learn the discipline of standing on and putting into practice the promises of God. Life's not a simple package, is it? It's full of the both and. It's funny and tragic. It's hopeful and disappointing, sometimes even in the same moment. It's bittersweet. Bittersweet is the notion that something broken and something beautiful can coexist. That there are glimmers of hope in every heartbreak and rejoicing is no less rich if it contains a little sadness. Bitter is what makes us strong and what forces us to grow up and push through. Sweet is nice enough, but bittersweet is beautiful and full of depth. It's courageous and it's earthy. Embracing the ups and downs of life, the tension, the bittersweet, and trusting that Jesus remains the same and is the truth that we build our lives on, keeps us anchored. It keeps us anchored to the one who says life will be bitter at times, but that he has overcome the world. This leads me on to my final point. You'll be glad to know we're coming into land. Um, That Jesus is our future hope. If you have a Bible with you, why don't you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 to 10. That's really small. (laughs) Hopefully I can read this. Okay, here we go. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. And then skipping ahead to 16 to 18. 
And that is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things we can't, that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. Jesus gives us life both now and eternally. And he longs for us to live lives that, that point towards and reflect and are prepared for a glory beyond itself. A deposit of the future is available now, an expression of heaven on earth revealed to our hearts and minds now. And because of this future hope, we can live a life that breathes hope and perspective. We can live in a way that lifts us above the day-to-day -day struggles. We just read that we are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We are knocked down, but we are not destroyed. This fourfold, but not, encourages us that we can be honest about our pain and in our prayers. The Apostle Paul speaks the language of experience, the experience of simultaneously acknowledging his distress and weakness, and also God's transcending power to transform every situation. Embracing the tension, embracing the bittersweet. Because of this future hope, we can live our lives in a way that extends life-changing grace to others. And with the very breath of God in our lungs, we are enabled to live and rise and persevere and overcome. In verse 16, we read, that is why we never give up. We don't ever need to lose heart. We can fully trust in his providence and divine protect protection. We can keep going, keep standing, stay the course and never give up because of his strength and his promise of eternal glory. In verse 17, we read this promise. Our pr for our present troubles are small and won't last very long yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. The words, a glory that vastly outweighs them or weight of glory, as we read in other translations, conjures up for me images of weighing scales, you know, the ones with the two pounds. If all our burdens were stacked up on one side of the scale, the pan would plummet, right? What's God's response? Does he remove them or eliminate the burdens? No, not necessarily. Rather than take them, he offsets them. He places an eternal weight of glory on the other side. Endless joy, measureless peace, and eternity with him. This life is to be lived well, but it is not our ultimate goal, and it does not encompass the entirety of who we are. This life is a mere drop in the ocean of eternity. We're meant to live in such a way that we're not chasing the things that do not last, but we are chasing the things that do last and have eternal significance. Living with this perspective will have an eternal impact not only on us, but for countless others around us. This life is preparation for our true destiny. God graciously prepares us in a twofold way. Using our troubles, he prepares us for an eternal glory. 
He also prepares us for the new existence so that we are able to receive it. God's preparation for our future is complete. He prepares it for us and us for it. He's all over it. In Jesus, our long-term future is totally secure. He is our future hope now. And this hope for tomorrow brings strength to today. Where do we place our hope? And ultimately, therefore, our faith and our hearts. Do you place your hope in being liked or seen as impressive? Do you place your hope in having status or significance? Do you place your hope in looking good or weighing less or hitting the gym a certain number of times a week? Are your hopes hanging on a future relationship or as yet unfulfilled desire of your heart? Have you set your hopes on certain educational goals or career progression? Are you hoping for a new job that will be the answer to all your work-related problems? Do you place your hope in your own feelings, emotions or desires? Have you placed your hope in your own understanding? I mean, we live in an age of information and technology, so we could become an expert on pretty much everything. Have you placed your hope in something or someone? Have you placed your hope in having a pain-free life or life going a certain way? Sadly, all of these things will no doubt lead to varying degrees of pressure and disappointment. And don't hear me wrong, I'm not saying that hoping for a relationship, working hard, trying to be healthy are bad things, not at all. But we cannot place our hope in them. Hoping in things that can be taken from us is not certain or sure hope at all. But we can place our hope in Jesus to lead us into a steadfast life of faith and servanthood. An authentic and satisfying life characterised by the pursuit of love and compassion, peace and justice. A kingdom-minded life postured towards the poor and outcast of society. A balanced life equipped to embrace the bittersweet and be strengthened by it. A courageous, overcoming, persevering and honest life of standing on the truth and holding firm to God-given promises and perspective. And the list goes on and on and on. From a place of security in God, we can step out and step into all he has for us. We don't just have it for ourselves, we have it so that we can give it away and we need to step into that. We need to lead and influence and pioneer and, and seek transformation for us and for others. Everyone needs a hope to cling to. We all have a choice to make to actively and intentionally place our hope in him, to love the things he loves and live the way he lived. When the world tells us to bow, to give in, to give up, we need to stand firm and we need to put hope into practice. This isn't a passive thing. Hope is a gift, yes, but it's also a weapon to be used. A life of faith requires us to put hope into practice and practice into hope, cultivating a habit of hope. We need to make a conscious and deliberate decision to build our lives on the enduring promises of God and on the heavenly storehouse of hope. We are people of the promise. As we prepare to respond to the Holy Spirit, and I'm sure 
There is lots he wants to do among us this evening. As we prepare our hearts, let me just finish by saying this. We all face pains and struggles in life, temptations and persuasions, times of uncertainty and change. And whilst the resurrection doesn't ensure that life will be without those things, it does ensure that we can be people who can turn to, rest in, be reassured in and stand firm in the everlasting hope we find in Jesus. In Jesus, there is matchless, unparalleled, complete hope for us all. Hope beyond all measure. Not found in our circumstances, but found and fulfilled, secure and unchanged in the arms and face of Jesus. I urge you, I urge you to set your eyes and heart on this hope. Let the hope of Jesus change your life. In Psalm 30, we read that weeping may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning. Some of you may just need to be reassured right now. You need reminding that despair will not rule the day. Sorrow will not last forever. And that mourning always comes. Perhaps not as quickly or as dramatically as we'd like sometimes, but it always comes, and with it comes joy. Whether our hearts are troubled or settled, doubting or hopeful, content or in despair, we need to remember that Jesus is the answer to everything. Nothing we ever face is outside of his attention. He is our personal hope. He is our certain hope and he is our future hope. Hope is here. Hope always remains the same. So let's choose hope. Let's let it emerge in and through us. The hope whose name is Jesus. Jesus.